The six years since the Paris Climate Agreement have been the six hottest years on record. The children cannot live on words and empty promises. They are waiting for you to act. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. If you don't know how to fix it, please stop breaking it. Dear friends, how are you? My name is Kel Spellman and I would like to give you a very warm welcome to this special episode of Call of the Wild, the podcast from WWF UK. Now, a brand new scientific report from WWF has surfaced and that has inspired us to bring you this episode. In this report, it shows, and it will come as no surprise to you if you've been listening to earlier episodes in this series, that right now we are living through a catastrophic loss of nature. Global wildlife population sizes have plummeted by 69% on average since 1970. So this means that monitored mammals, birds, amphibians, reptiles and fish populations have dropped on average by more than two thirds in less than a lifetime. Freshwater wildlife populations have dropped by an alarming average of 83%. And monitored wildlife populations in the Caribbean and Latin America, home to the Amazon, showed an average drop of 94% since 1970. And yes, we normally take a topic and we chat to experts and familiar voices and work out what changes, big or small, are needed to collectively make a difference. But in this episode, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently and we're going to use this very critical report from WWF to guide us through. And we're going to go on a whistle-stop tour around the world to some key areas and ecosystems to find out about the health of our planet and what nature desperately needs from us right now. Yes, the clock is ticking. But it is not too late. I have got the perfect person to take us on this trip around the world as we look at the state of the planet through this report. Now, if you've listened to this series before, you might recognise this voice because this voice belongs to the Director of Science at WWF UK and also my friend, Mr Mark Wright. How are you, sir? Hi, Kel. Always a pleasure. Let's get stuck into it, Mark. Question one. Very, very simple. For anyone who might not know, what is the Living Planet Report or the LPR as it's sometimes abbreviated to? Yeah, I think the LPR, I think, is the most authoritative guide to the state of the planet. It looks at, well, over 5,000 species across the globe. So that's on land, in rivers, you know, in the oceans. And basically it says, you know, compared to a baseline of 1970, how well are those species doing? And it does that at the population level. So for example, if in, in, in Africa, you have a population of elephants of 300, how big is that population now? Is it still 300? Has it got bigger? Has it got smaller? So it does that for almost 32,000 populations of these 5,000 plus species. You do all the number crunching, bring it together, and you come up with these numbers, which shows by and large, on average, they're doing extremely badly. If we're going to dig into that extremely badly a little bit more, what were some of the top line finds within this year's report? To me, it is that overriding story that despite all those promises we've been hearing around the globe over the last couple of years, your politicians have been standing up, business leaders have been standing up. We are still not seeing a genuine turning of the corner and seeing those genuine seeds of recovery in the natural world. 
Of course, we are seeing massive declines in, in the natural world in terms of biodiversity decline, but we also know we're facing a climate crisis. And I think it's really important to understand that those two things are inextricably linked so that as we lose nature, that will impact climate. And of course, as climate gets worse and worse and worse, so that will impact nature. But we absolutely rely on nature. Nature is our greatest ally in addressing the climate crisis. So, for example, if we were to lose the whole of the Amazon forest, God forbid, then we would absolutely lose our fight to control climate change. Looking through the report, one thing that really stands out, and it's something that constantly pops up on this podcast, and I think is really at the forefront of any conversation around climate change, is the biodiversity crisis. And the rate of decline and loss is moving at an alarming rate. It's that for a long time that if we don't see or feel the problem on our doorstep, so to speak, we can't quite make that link. You know, if you look at the UK, for example, the countryside does look luscious and green. What are we specifically talking about when we do say nature loss? I think many people struggle with the idea of catastrophic decline because we see it across it's not just the living planet report you see it on the news all the time yeah we're in a nature crisis we have a climate crisis but for you and me or anyone else listening we look out the window and we see a fairly nice green pleasant landscape if we can try and put it in different terms to me it's rather like going into you know one of the the biggest library in the uk so you're standing at the doorway and you look at all these books and wonderful that is that that is our collective knowledge of mankind on these shelves all around here in the same way as we can look at biodiversity that's the collective knowledge of nature so we think all is is good but then when we get closer to the shelves we suddenly realize there are actually some books are missing completely because some species have gone extinct and then also then when we look even closer still we recognize that instead of having millions and millions of different books we're now having hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of the same book over and over again. So we we still have the numbers there, but in terms of the richness of nature, that's been ripped out. In terms of the volume of nature, that's been gutted as well. How worried should we be, given the findings in this report? I I think we have to be worried. I think we have to be worried for ourselves, but I think we also have to be worried for you know, subsequent generations as well, because in a sense, we are leaving them a really poor legacy if we don't address it now. But actually, if I'm being really honest here, I, I, yes, I think we should be worried. But truly, I think we should be angry because we are not seeing that, that shift in focus, that shift in commitment and drive and ambition to turn things around when it is absolutely within our gift to do that. So absolutely, we should be angry. Well, safe to say time is not on our side, so let's get this trip started and find out how some of these challenges are playing out on a local level. And Mark, I think we're going to need to wrap up warm for our first stop because we are here in Antarctica. What can you tell me about this place? Well, first of all, it's somewhere I've never been, but I would dearly, dearly love to go. Oh, same. Apparently it is superlative in every sense. It's the coldest continent on Earth. It's also the driest. It's also the windiest. I mean, how any life can live there is extraordinary. But it's also a great repository of fresh water. So just imagine 70% of all of the world's fresh water reserves are locked up, frozen on top of the, the continent of Antarctica. What is the impact of a changing climate in the polar regions? Well, it's it's massive, actually, actually, Cal. Um, we often like to talk about you know this 1.5 degree world that we have to stay within, so that we we're still within this safe operating space for of humanity and wildlife. But that's a global average. So we know the poles are warming 
much, much faster than the rest of the world on average. And in fact, I mean, earlier this year, you may have seen the reports that Antarctica at one stage, it had reached 40 degrees centigrade. That's four zero, not one four. That's 40 degrees centigrade above normal for that time of year. The same time as in the Arctic, they were seeing temperatures 30 degrees above normal. So when we talk about this 1.5 degree ceiling, as it were, yeah, in many parts of the world, that's already being surpassed because it's the global average we're trying to control. But just imagine somewhere where you have huge, huge swathes of frozen water suddenly experiencing temperatures 40 degrees above what is expected. Of course, that's going to have impact both on the surrounding seas and also on global climate. So you've mentioned the important role these regions play as part of our life support system. But they're also, of course, home to some incredible, beautiful species. Could you tell us a little bit more about those species that call it home? Well, I think they're all brave species in, in my book, Gil. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't want to live there. I certainly wouldn't survive there for very long. There are some areas there where they have found, wait for this, 155,000 animals per square meter. So obviously they're all really, really small, they're worms and so on. But that's extraordinary richness, which is why that area can support things like whales and seals and penguins, because the seas are so rich. There are many species of penguins that call Antarctica home, but there's only two which are real specialists. One of them we want to focus on here, I think, which is the emperor penguin. It's the, the largest of all living penguins. I and mean, if, if you were standing next to it, it would come up to your waist. And they really are kind of Antarctic specialists. And in fact, they're the only vertebrate that can breed in Antarctica during the winter. Very, very special birds. Well, speaking of seabirds, Call of the Wild reached out to Stephanie Genouvrier, who is a seabird ecologist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And she explained the challenges that emperor penguins are facing in this changing world. I think that baby penguins are among the cutest chicks out of all bird species, but I'm a little bit biased because I study emperor penguins for 20 years now. But they are so fluffy. So when chicks are born, penguins are almost naked, and they are developing a full adult waterproof plumage takes about a year. And an example of this uh, big danger for emperor penguins and their chick is illustrated by what happened in 2016 this colony suffered a dramatic breeding failure. More than 10,000 of chicks are thought to have drowned when the ice broke up before they were ready to swim at Halle Colony in 2016. So this shows that, you know, if the ice breaks up too early, then a chick will drown. So the relationship between sea ice and emperor penguin life cycle is finely balanced. Too little sea ice and they can't find the right stable habitat and too much sea ice and the trek from nesting room to the feeding ground and back becomes too difficult and they can't feed their chicks. In other words, there is a Goldilocks zone for penguins to thrive. Chicks that have not molted and acquired their waterproof plumage can drown if sea ice breaks up too early. If there is too much sea ice on the other hand, adult foraging trip become too long and the adults and chick may starve. If sea ice decline at the rate predicted by climate model and without any change in the way we human produce and consume energy, almost all emperor penguin colony will likely disappear by the end of the century. Of course, this makes me feel sad and during my entire career, I was looking for a solution for halting on penguins' march to extinction. 
So I look for refugees around Antarctica. I look for penguin adaptation and to face, you know, climate change. But I found no hope for emperor penguin to persist in the future without any change in the way we produce and consume energy. We need to see a profound effort in all sectors in these decades to decarbonize the world to be in line with the 1.5 Celsius of the Paris Agreement. So when I observe penguin hurling together in the harsher climate, I believe we can learn a thing or two about this collective effort to overcome extreme climate conditions. Only together they can brave the harsher climate and only together can we face a difficult climate future. Stephanie, I couldn't agree more. And once again, we look to nature. Do as the emperor penguins do. I think that's a good rule for life, really. So, Mark, if the polar regions change, which at this moment in time, we are on course to absolutely see that, what impact then will that have on the rest of the world? So we know that these are repositories of huge amounts of fresh water. As that melts, which inevitably it will with higher temperatures, or as we're losing kind of summer sea ice, so we have more fresh water going into the oceans. So you are diluting the saltiness of the sea in those areas. That saltiness is what partly drives ocean currents. So things like in the Northern Hemisphere, yeah, we are blessed with the, the Gulf Stream, which keeps us warm in the winter. As, that, in, as we're seeing melt from places like Greenland and so on, that fresh water coming to those systems, so some of those global oceans currents will change with, I'm sure people do know what they are, but they, these, these changes will be enormous and essentially irreversible. Thank you, Mark. Right. Okay, my friends, let's put our seatbelts back on. Let's carry on with our tour. We've gone from the Antarctica to the middle of the ocean. I've got my wetsuit on, my goggles on. Tell me, Mark, why are we stopping here? This is a story about where we need to come together as a global community, where we need to better understand governance. In other words, how do we control what happens in a place because we want to talk about the high seas when this high seas is that wonderful sounding thing it sounds like pirates and things like that but essentially the high seas are those areas which are outside in technical jargon the areas beyond national jurisdiction so all countries that have a coastline including the uk we have control or responsibility up to an area it's about 200 miles offshore but then beyond that we're kind of in no man's land so for example in the middle of the atlantic who controls what happens there? Who decides what the rules are? Who says what can and can't take place? Who polices it? But to be blunt, there isn't really an overarching and compelling global understanding or acceptance of what can and can't be done in those places. That's why we need to address this, because at the moment, there's a bit of a wild west out there. And what is it that's happening in the wild west of the seas then? Several things. First of all, there are resources out there. So most of the tuna we get and much of the mackerel we get is fished in those high seas. So people are you know, going there for you know, fish, fish resources. Krill in the future will be one of those things. You know, the krill that the, the whales eat, that is increasingly becoming a product that we're looking to as well. But it's also areas which are increasingly being looked at for uh, deep sea mining. You can get these metallic nodules that sit on the seabed. You know, who who has the right to those mineral resources? And of course, you know, most most of the goods in the world are shipped. So how do we control all those things in a way that minimizes the negative impacts but boosts the, the positives for nature? What is the impact it's having on those species that call our ocean home? Yeah, well, I think, and I think I'd like to kind of 
home in on some of those things which are kind of the great travellers in a sense. Whales, I mean, humpback whales migrate 5,000 miles from where they feed to where they breed. So they're kind of crossing these these waters. Many of the sharks you know, are real kind of massive travellers across the oceans. Many of the turtles are as well. So in a sense, they, they put themselves in harm's way. Let's just get a sense of scale here, okay? So some of these trawls, they put out nets behind them in which you could quite comfortably fit 12 jumbo jets. Anything that gets in the way of that, this massive moor at the front of the net here will, will be brought in. And for whales and dolphins, you know, bycatch, so this is where you catch something you weren't setting out to catch. You know, that's the biggest cause of, of casualties amongst whales and dolphins around the world. And many, many turtles lost in exactly the same way. So in a sense, what we're trying to do is to keep those things separate. We know, for example, for the whales, we, these the ocean superhighways, if you like, we know where they are. So if we can manage the oceans in a way that we're keeping the, the fishing effort and these sort of migration routes apart, then we're trying to, we will allow nature to stay out of harm's way. I wondered, is there anything in the works to help protect the high seas? And how do you think a global community can come together to reach a decision that is going to protect them as soon as possible? There are there are negotiations afoot, actually, Kel. So a couple of months ago, there was another round of negotiations in New York. We anticipate the next round and hopefully the final round will be at the beginning of next year to try and to pull together what they're calling the UN Oceans Treaty, which will map out precisely that. Yeah, what are the rules and regulations, the controls, the policing in those high sea areas? But of course, it is a real, it's a really tricky thing because every nation on earth who has you know, will be part of this negotiation want something different from it. So how do you kind of get that collective understanding, that collective agreement, which is good for the nations which rely on the fish stocks, but also is good for the world writ large? Well, let's just hope that process starts becoming more and more streamlined and actually starts bringing about that change quickly that we need to see. Okay, Mark, so we're going to head back to land and we're going to one of my favourite places on Earth, our forests. Oh, breathe in that good, clean, oxygenated air. Feels beautiful. But I'm guessing, as with all these areas and different ecosystems the report is telling us about around the planet, our forests aren't in too good of a shape. I'd love to dissuade you from that that view, Kel, but no, sadly, you're absolutely right. So we often home in on the tropics, but actually it's forests across the world are facing real challenges at the moment. So we know, yeah, we've seen all the kind of footage from the Amazon with all the fires and the levels of deforestation and so on. We've seen the forest fires in California. We've seen kind of forest fires in Siberia. And we've seen what's happening in the UK. Yeah, we are still losing some of our old growth forests as we put in new infrastructure and so on. And to what level? Well, we estimate something like 10 million hectares of forest is lost every year. It's about the size of Portugal, Kel. That's what we're losing every year. It's just terrifying. And I don't think that even begins to cover it. It absolutely baffles me that we still seem to continue on this road when it absolutely makes no sense. Off that then, what is the reality of losing so much of our forest, Mark? Like you said, it's one of your favourite places, and I think it, they are places of natural beauty. They're places of massive biodiversity, so something like anywhere up to 80% of all of our land-based species you know, lives in forests. About a fifth of the human population you know, either lives in or depends on forests. 
you know, for their livelihoods, for their you know, forest products, their incomes. So yes, it, it has economic and social value for people as well. It is critical in, as a way of underpinning our efforts to control climate change because they are such massive stores of carbon. On an annual basis, forests absorb 7.6 gigatons. No one knows what a gigaton is, <laughs> so I'll tell you. It's 7.6 thousand million tonnes of carbon taken out of the atmosphere per year for free by forests. Now, when we were prepping this episode, I know that you wanted to specifically look at a forest in Nepal. Why? Uh, to me, it's a, it's a good news story. <laughs> we spend a lot of time talking about the bad news stories. I think this is a really good news story. So I wanted to talk about those lowland forests, lowland Paul in the north of India. So that, that area, which is called the Terai, one of the homes around the world of tigers. And so this is an area where there are quite high human populations. Largely, the communities are poor. And yet there we have seen a real growth, <laughs> a threefold increase in the numbers of tigers living in Nepal you know, this century. So it's an enormous conservation success, but it has only been possible through the concerted engagement of local people and the forward thinking of politicians and conservationists and so on to allow people and wildlife, dangerous wildlife, to live, live alongside one another. Well, now I would like to introduce Smriti Dahal, who grew up in Nepal and is the manager of Conflict Communities and Connectivity at WWF Tigers Alive Initiative. It's quite the mouthful. She saw the impact that forest decline was having on tigers and worked with the team to do something about it. The main threat to decreasing tiger numbers in Nepal is habitat loss and poaching. And for habitat loss, the number of people, the increase in population residing around these tiger habitats, urbanization, development, more number of people mean more land for settlement. And for cultivation, expanding forests into agricultural land uh, has resulted in deforestation and substantially decrease in tiger habitat, which has led to a decrease in tiger numbers. because. The tiger habitat is important not just for prey species to survive, but also tigers need the grassland, the forest to kind of act as a camouflage because they're a hunting animal, they need to stalk their prey. So it's also important from that aspect as well for tigers. So today, the tigers have lost their range, the historic range, the areas that tiger used to be present has decreased to less than 5%. And the numbers of tigers in the wild has also decreased drastically. But a combination of tiger range countries came together to show their commitment to double tiger numbers in their country. So in 2009, the number of tigers in Nepal was 121. It increased to 235 in 2018. And this year, last July in Global Tiger Day, we almost tripled from our 2009 baseline Tiger conservation in the context of Nepal looks like grassland management on the ground. For example, community-based anti-poaching units. These are community members which are engaged in walking around the forest to make sure there's no illegal activities going on. The community-based organization working with national park authorities 
to make sure there is adequate management of protected areas and corridors outside protected areas. At the government level, there's policies that are in place, strong policies that are in place to manage protected areas, manage forests, uh, control the poaching. Uh, Nepal, the conservation departments in Nepal also work closely with the army and the police to make sure that uh, illegal wildlife trade and poaching is controlled at the national level, especially along transboundary corridors, transboundary areas. So for Nepal, I think the combination of different institutions, communities and government working together is what conservation, tiger conservation looks like in Nepal. One of the things that Nepal now needs to focus on is managing these tiger numbers, especially in relation to human-wildlife conflict. Because as the numbers increase, the communities are changing, the landscapes are changing, the habitats are changing, and that line, blurred line of shared spaces is becoming blurrer for tigers as well as community. The community needs to feel the benefits of living with tigers outweighs the cost of living with tigers for them. So if that happens, then we can say we have become successful in terms of tiger conservation. So for our final stop on our tour around the world, let's bring it back home, Mark. We really have been on quite the journey this episode and as I said right at the beginning Mark, I wouldn't have wanted to be on this journey with anyone else but I do feel that the right place to finish this journey is right here at home and when we look at home, I mean the UK when I say that, where does the UK stand when it comes to biodiversity and nature loss? The UK isn't doing terribly well either. I think we, we, we both refer to the, you know, the UK being a sort of green and pleasant land or, or words to that effect. And uh, here, quick uh, quick pop quiz for you. How many species do you think live in the UK? Ooh, um, 30,000? Close, 70,000. <sighs> oh, wow. But if you look at the most recent report that came on a UK level, and we're not talking about the small one-cell things here, we are talking about the bigger things. Over the last just 10 years... 44% of those species have decreased in abundance just in the last 10 years. And of course, you know, the, the, the history of that is, is no better. We know, you know, if you look at a lot of the, the Living Planet Index numbers, you know, it looks like we're doing quite well. But that's because we know Living Planet Index starts in 1970. We had ravaged nature well before 1970. There's a, a thing called the Biodiversity Intactness Index, which essentially measures what we, we currently have compared to what we used to have. We have about 50%, which puts us in the bottom 10% of all countries around the world. How is it possible on this island of nature lovers, we have got to a situation whereby we have lost 50% of our kind of biodiversity richness. And so when I think about what I saw as a, as a boy and then what I can go and see with my grandson, they are incomparable. You know, we have lost so much within my lifetime and it makes me sad, but it makes me feel shortchanged. But it also, it also fires me up to try and make, to turn it around, to make it better going forward. Because I know what we could get, what we could achieve if we put our mind to it. Well, let's take a slight pause, Mark, because I would like to introduce someone who loves exploring and connecting with nature in the UK. It's Welsh adventurer, explorer and wildlife biologist Lizzie Daly, who you might recognise from BBC Earth, National Geographic, The One Show and so much more. 
Now, I had a good old chat with Lizzie about the state of nature in the UK, and she began by telling me about one of her favourite trips off the Gower Peninsula on the southern coast of Wales. We went offshore into a stretch of water called the Celtic Deep off of Wales, um, which is about 20 miles offshore. You get on your, you know, a lovely kind of Welsh old school boat and you're probably going to be sick because it's the Welsh seas and they, you know, <laughs> no mercy. But, you know, you get out into this stretch of water and you are surrounded by the UK's largest seabird, like the gannet, and you've got the sound of, you know, you may have the odd skewer go past. And I remember this day very well because it was very sunny, but it was, it was really a rolly day. And we ended up seeing three different species of shark in one day off of the Welsh coast, which is just, it's just mind-blowing. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't believe it. We saw a thresher shark spinning up into the air, out of the water. We saw poor beagle sharks and blue sharks around the boat. Wow. And at that point, it really put, I guess, the Celtic Deep on the map for me as being a real diverse place. And yes. we still don't know so much about this stretch of water. But another spot which I would highly recommend going to is up to the Shetland Islands. And this collection of islands are, they're wet and they're windy, but it's also home to a resident pod of orca. There's so much out there. Wow. Even them couple of examples you've given, you know, three types of shark, this beautiful pod of orcas. I don't make the link to that being in the UK. Mm -hmm. Where do you think that disconnect comes from? Or why do you think like we never make that link? Is it because we've just not, I guess, celebrated or it's been talked about enough? It's a really good question. I think there's a few reasons. I mean, we've all heard it quite a few times about how nature depleted the UK really is. And I think that's mm -hmm. also reflected in us as a society. We are part of a world now where we're kind of, we're fast growing. We want things immediately. We want new, we want big and better. And we, a lot of us actually live in these urban environments. So what you get is these, all the wildlife and all these pockets of, of wild but it's almost like we're getting further and further away from that. And I think yes. now we're part of a generation where we are hungry to to kind of reestablish that connection with nature. And we're starting to realize that we have become disconnected along the way. Let's think about how that connection is there and how we can basically just reignite it because it is in everyone, I think. Until you see or experience it, you're never going to fully make the correlation, are you, I guess? I mean, let's dig into then the reality of the situation. The UK is one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world. And given your work, Lizzie, have you seen this? And are you witnessing it? I mean, as the years go by, year on year on year. Yeah, absolutely. On many different levels. I think that's the hardest thing is, you know, it's all great going out and seeing these amazing species, but actually a lot of the, the species that we do film are on the edge or are endangered or are in decline, as you've said, or, or actually what's more worrying is that the habitat they live in is depleting at such a rate that actually they're probably not going to come back in terms of actually being able to survive because there is no habitat left. In that sense, there's different levels. So for example, there's an amazing wetlands not far from me, actually in Newport. I'm, I'm only focusing on, on Wales because that's all I know about being Welsh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's home to cranes that were basically pushed to extinction here in the UK and brought back. And just recently they've started breeding on the on these wetlands and there's owls that live there and there's water voles which are in huge decline as well. It's an amazing sight. But every few years it's threatened by a relief road running around Newport. Okay. And instead of, I guess, putting resources into bettering our roads, we're threatening really critical environments, which are good for carbon storage and our home to really important wildlife species. We're threatening that um, because of our 
need to increase our urban areas to better our transport yeah. systems in harmful ways. And I, I, I don't think we need to have that kind of approach when it comes to bettering how we live. We just like to build more. Yes. Instead yeah, of thinking yeah, yeah. about how we can improve um, what we've got. But actually, I, I have really seen um, worrying changes. So, for example, a few years ago, I was in Swansea and I got a call with my um, colleague, Mary Gajan. And they were like, we need you to go and pick up a, a washed up turtle. It's a Kemp's Ridley turtle. They're critically endangered. It was like the seventh turtle to ever wash up in the UK. And on this beach was this beautiful, I mean, it's such a beautiful turtle that normally is found in the Gulf of Mexico. And because of changing seas, it experienced cold water shock and actually was washed over the sea, Atlantic Ocean, onto our shores, which we're seeing more of that happen. And unfortunately, it did die. And there it was in my hands, unfortunately dead. And, you know, it sounds really depressing, but that was the reality of that very moment. You know, you're holding a a critically endangered turtle it's tough when you see things yeah. like that it's really tough and that's and that's the thing you know it's and it's not getting it's not improving anytime soon as you say it's kind of the, the signs are becoming more and more startling and more and more worrying and more and more prevalent do you know of any other restoring projects around the uk that are happening that are in flow at the moment that can give us a source of hope and inspiration as well i guess yes a lot of the projects that i've kind of looked at briefly is is the kind of big players in rewilding. So things like beavers being reestablished in places like, you know, the River Otter. And I've done a lot because they're ecosystem engineers is what they've been labelled as. And if you let a beaver just do its beavery thing in a natural environment, actually what happens is it creates, you know, small pools of water, which then go on to sustain a lot of the other vertebrate life and local flora. And that's a massive benefit to then the environment in terms of carbon storage and capture and things like that. Red squirrels are restoring them back into... Welsh landscapes, you know, they are a native species that have been pushed out from the bigger, more dominant grey squirrels in the UK. There's really cool projects going on, actually. There's one in Wales where they're using AI in forests to listen out for grey squirrels versus red squirrels. So literally, like, they're listening for the different sounds of different squirrels to understand. Wow. Yeah, different populations in the area. This concept can go as big or small as you like. But it all has a place in giving back to nature and doing it in a way that I guess is also adapted to having us part of it because we can't ignore the fact that we are now part of this new world we live in. If we're trying to look at restoring our precious wildlife species, these beautiful habitats, these incredible ecosystems and plants and flowers that we could have in abundance, how do you think we go about that? What should we be looking for? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, I think first and foremost is the challenge is so enormous. We need to match it with the same ambition. So I'm talking, we need to scale up the solutions and the pace at which we are having to deal with these challenges. I'm talking like earthscape levels. Let's go ambitious because we actually have to. We don't have the luxury of time. We need to accelerate it and integrate, I guess, the efficacy of climate and biodiversity actions for that greater impact. I think we need better representation in these conversations for, of course, the Global South, um, underrepresented communities. I think that's a big part of it. I'd like to see more support and trust in younger voices. I think there is a whole movement with fire in their bellies of young people who want to be part of that decision-making process and who are saying some really sensible things. I think for too long, kind of, we've been getting in line and queuing up behind these old ways of thinking and people who've been in power uh, making decisions wrong decisions 
not enough decisions. I'm yeah. going for it. Sorry. No, no, this is it. I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm signing this manifesto. Uh, I'm yeah. in. I think accountability as well is a big one. So I had this opportunity to host Inside the Blue Zone at COP26. And it was a real eye-opener because, you know, there's all these kind of intentions and targets and promises. But we I kind of heard them all before. And there we were, you know, sat yeah. on this stool talking to really wonderful uh, inspiring people, people who are doing great things, and then there's decision makers and world leaders. But we're talking about the same stuff, and it's kind of like, where's the accountability for the things you haven't done? I think the biggest one for me, I guess, having my toe in the science world, is we need to trust and support and include science to help develop these plans and, and lean on the, the truth that is scientific evidence, basically. <laughs> A massive thank you to the brilliant Lizzie Daly. And picking up on a final point there on that scientific evidence, Mark, this all sounds so obvious, but trusting the science is so important here, isn't it? Absolutely right. We have to rely on the science. And when we talk about science, what I mean is is evidence, because that is the only way that we can make logical, informed decisions going forward so we make the best choices possible. Well, speaking of those best choices, Mark, in your opinion, what are those things that need to be done? I think first and foremost, we have to make good on all the promises and commitments we've already been that have already been made because there was nothing wrong with the promises. There was nothing wrong with the commitments. Problem is there has been no follow through or or as we've seen with in, in recent days in the UK, attempts to row back on those commitments or to, to water down or to dodge them completely. We absolutely need to make good on those commitments. So we need to understand the scale of the threat and the urgency required. And we have to make sure that our response to that is commensurate with that. So that's that's the first thing. We need to be able to unleash green finance. That's about getting the policies right. So that's for the government to make it open and accessible for people to invest in the right things. And I'm not talking about opening up new new gas and oil reserves in the North Sea, which seems to be the flavour of the month. But let's let's put the money into something which is forward facing as opposed to returning to the Industrial Revolution. Let's have proper visionary thinking going forward. Can can you not just take over? Because I, I do truly feel the world and nature would be in a better place yeah, if yeah. you were running it. <laughs> not even not even not even remotely touching, <laughs> I'm afraid. <Carl. laughs> and Mark, we always want people to listen to Call of the Wild and come away with tangible things they can do. So when we talk about holding governments to account or making better, more conscious, greener choices, what are some of those things that people can be doing and also looking to support and helping make happen? I think there are just so many things we can do. And I think we are part of that collective kind of push towards a better way of living. So we can raise our voices. So, of course, we can talk to our politicians. We can write them, send emails, et cetera, et cetera. But a new new initiative is coming out now called the People's Plan for Nature, which WWF is doing alongside other uh, environmental uh, groups in the UK. Essentially, it's inviting everyone around the country to essentially share ideas of how you, the listener, you want to protect and restore nature in the, in the UK. How do we collectively make it something that we can be truly proud of? So if you want to be part of that, you know, go online to look for the People's Plan for Nature and you know, give us your ideas and we can use that as a collection to, put, to push forward to decision makers saying, look, this is what people are truly pushing for. So that's about raising your voice. 
on a personal level, there's so much we can do around the house. Of course, we're all front and center at the moment is how we do energy efficiency. But we know that one of the biggest drivers for habitat loss and species decline around the world is, is the food system. You know, it, you know, agriculture uses a vast swathe of, of, of the planet. So let's just look a little bit at our, our food habits. So how can we, well, first of all, waste less food and we, we waste as a as a collective around the world we, we lose or waste about a third of all the food we produce now how can we kind of reduce that wastage you know just just buy what you need don't throw it away how do we move more towards eating far less processed food which are you know, energy intensive and so on so it's not let's be really clear it's not about becoming vegetarian or vegan it's about being more more conscious consumers so be more aware of where does your your food come from you know, what has gone into making that product so that we can make more informed choices so we we're eating for the planet not against it final question mark and it's probably another obvious one but is this going to be enough or is it too late categorically Kel, we are not too late <sighs> but okay. also clearly the longer we delay the more difficult it will be and, and importantly, the more costly it will be in order to respond. But I do, I suppose, by the nature of what we're talking about here, Kelly, it's very easy to dwell on the negative, of, of course. It's, and I understand why people do that. But I would urge all of us to kind of collectively see this moment as the opportunity that it really is. And when I say collectively, I mean that. That's you, Kel. That's me. All our listeners, the business leaders, our politicians, it's all of us because... If we do respond with that urgency and the true commitment, we will be doing the right thing for nature and climate, and also, but also critically, we'll be carving out a better future for people with all the economic, social, well-being benefits that that will bring. It's a win-win. Mark, I feel that's the perfect note to wrap up this tour on, which don't know if this is right and it kind of feels wrong to say but I have enjoyed it in a way as tough and as terrifying as some of these things have been to hear and off that I'm sure like me when listening to some of these things and these facts that are presented to us it is overwhelming it is scary you find it quite hard to comprehend at times and it is a lot for us to take on but what might help with that is earlier on in season two we released an episode about nature and well-being so if you have been listening to this and you are going Kel give us a break please my head hurts and I just need a little bit of time and space for myself that's absolutely fine that's okay in fact it's important we have to make sure we're looking after ourselves and putting ourselves first so if you do check out that episode it might just have some little doses of goodness and positivity that may be of some help and I guess there's nothing much more for me to say which is quite funny really because I've always got something to say um but the report says everything we need to know it's all there in black and white the alarm bells have been ringing for decades but the alarm bells have never been ringing as loudly and as clearly as they are now i want to leave you with this it's a story i came across this week that quite fittingly ignited my passion and drive to be involved in the climate environmental space the story was centered around the ozone layer Back in the 70s, 80s and 90s and even early 2000s, I was hearing about it at school. We were burning a hole in this layer and it was getting worse and worse. 
the story that came out this week is that hole is now getting smaller and smaller. Every country around the world came together and said, okay, let's do something about that. We all are agreed on that. We can all act upon that. So if we can do that for the ozone layer, there is no reason why we can't do this for every area, every species, every ecosystem that we've covered here in this episode and is in the Living Planet Report. Let's hold on to that and let's push for that. I have been Kel Spellman and Call of the Wild is a fresh air production for WWF UK. <laughs> and actually, after this episode, this final sentence has never, ever, I think, rang more true than this. The wild is calling. It's time to act. <laughs>